it's Jason Cunningham and welcome back to Save My Business, the podcast that aims to help small and medium-sized businesses get through the proverbial shitstorm and out the other side. And today, I've got to tell you, I'm pretty pumped. I've got a very good friend of mine, a great mentor of mine, a client of ours, and just a dead set good bloke. And his name is Cameron Swab. Swabby, welcome aboard. Good to see you, Jase. You're going well. You're looking very svelte, as I said. It looks like uh, the Donna Aston work is... Um has hit the mark so well done on all that yeah thanks mate she's uh yeah that program has been nothing short of outstanding and i guess okay. at the start of the pandemic and you know the whole lockdown i i went with the whole comfort food comfort drug and comfort no exercise and now you know cam i got to the point where i thought just felt a bit lethargic a bit yuck and so I jumped on that and you know it's it's nothing like that feeling when you bounce out of bed and you're feeling fresh and so yeah i'm That's right into it no good stuff no well done and that been you know like anything it's a um and we say to people, you don't rise to the level of your ambition, you, you fall to the level of your systems. And, and the one thing about Donna is she's created a system for you and it's obviously working, which is great. And you're stuck with it. And um, yeah, so I think that's one of the things which has come out of the pandemic a little bit is that people had good systems coming in, have had to change them and it hasn't necessarily worked. People who didn't have a system have it's been an opportunity to create it. And, uh, and that's obviously worked for you, which is terrific. Absolutely. Now, Swabby. It's enough about me. Obviously, we'll keep coming back to me throughout the podcast. Yeah, no, no, every three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Cam, I wanted to share uh, with our audience uh, just a little bit about you. And I know you're uh, quite a humble person, so I won't get into it too much. But the, I guess there's a few reasons why I asked you to join us. I mean, a lot of the listeners will be thinking, why the hell has Jason got a retired or ex-CEO? No, an, uh, an old crusty CEO. <laughs> on the podcast, but I, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about today if we can, pal, and we've only got a 45, 15 minutes, but your start in life, uh, in your professional career, as a, I believe you were the youngest ever CEO, uh, began life at the Richmond Footy Club at the age of 23 or 24. Yeah, 24. 24, worked at three different clubs, Richmond, the Demons, and uh, Fremantle Dockers. Mm-hmm. And had some ups and downs and, you know, had some challenges along the way. I just wanted for you, if you can, if you can share a bit of that story and tell me what it was like walking into a position at the age of 24. And look, a lot of us blokes have got in the back of our mind or sitting on our shoulders, I've got to live up to my father's expectations, right? And your old man was, and your family was, the AFL. Tell me what that felt like at the age of 24, to step into those shoes, having been a kid and seeing your father have conversations with Kevin Sheedy, uh, Royce Hart, Francis Burke, Tommy Hafing, these sorts of things. Tell me what that felt like as a kid. I was very privileged, really. I actually grew up thinking that somehow my life was more colourful and more meaningful than most other people's. It was it was just so unique. And, and I think probably because, like yourself, you go through various phases of reflection and, and probably had more time to do that in more recent years and, and even coming say into the, the Richmond CEO role was I was in the same office that I used to spend my school holidays in as a kid basically and I remember sitting behind the old veneer desk and uh, and thinking gee this desk could tell some stories you know and and I, I would literally sit on the other side of the desk as a young fellow and uh, as you know I'm, I'm into art as well so I'd sit on the other side of my dad's desk as he was going about whatever business he was going about uh, drawing pictures and just hoping that a Royce Hart or Kevin Sheedy or someone would walk past, you know, that, that was, that was really it. And, but, but probably the insight that I was given, which was probably the first time I thought that maybe the game, so I had some feeling for the game itself was, 
that, that each Sunday morning, Tom Hafey would catch up with my dad. They'd either come around to our house. We grew up just in the, it was an outer suburb at that stage in Mount Waverley and, uh, and Tom would come around or dad would go over to Tom's house or they'd meet at the punt road oval and, and I'd generally tag along and I might've been eight, nine or 10 and there's no replays in those days. So the, 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 they'd sit there and review the game. You know, they, they'd recall the game to each other and, and I'd be sitting there and thinking, I remember that bit, you know, and, and often they'd be talking about the players who were my heroes, because that's what you, when you're a kid, they are your heroes, but they, and they're your superheroes in, in many ways. And often think I fell in love with the Richmond football club before I fell in love with anything in life, really. Mm. And it would be the only thing which went close was probably Batman, you know, it was that, that tough. And, and really the, really the, you know, Royce Hart became Batman in, in, in my mind. Yeah. And, and they'd be talking about, you know, what the players weren't doing. You know, the, 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 the classical things that the people who are into performance would talk about. Mm. Uh, and they'd be talking about it in the, the context of, you know, I don't know if Royce Hart's the player he was because of his knees. And so they'd be talking almost about their kryptonite, not their... Yeah. And so having that and then growing up with that and then I've got a job as, a, as an office boy at the Melbourne Football Club um, because my surname's Schwab. I, I don't bring much to this in my own right probably just an insight into the game, but it was very unproven or un, uncertain. And the, and the one thing I would say, and you mentioned before about the, my dad, he never ever had any expectation of me to, to do that. It was, it was always my expectation of myself really. And, and that's had its, had its challenges over the years as well. But then I, I go to work at Melbourne and, and my first boss is Ron Barassi. So I go from Tom Hafey to Ron Barassi yeah, wow. in, in, and I'm 18 years of age, 19 years of age. And I get my break with Ron because I offer to edit out his tapes for him because he used to go into these team meetings and just fast forward and rewind through the tapes. And, and I, I used to do the mixtapes. You know, you cut a mixtape for your girlfriend or something like that. <laughs> and so I thought, well, there, there is a capability piece that I can actually use. Here. I've got a skill set. <laughs> I've got a skill set. Yeah. All of a sudden, my skill set was an advantage. And so I, and I was still living at home at the time, and and I'd take home these uh, his video on a full cap piece of paper, and I'd spend the Monday night editing out the tape for him to then show the players the next day. And and what that would do is actually put me into in conversation with with Ron Barassi. So I've gone from this conversation with Tom, then in conversation with Ron, mm. and then recruiting changed a little bit, and all of a sudden I find myself doing recruiting. And that, so it was just, and so they weren't, and they weren't just, and the great thing about both of those guys is that they, even though I was a young person, they, they honored me. They embraced the teaching and the coaching of me. And it might've been because of dad, mm. but right from the outset, I felt that I was getting, I was being given an insight and it, they might've, we might've been called coaches, but they were teachers. And so they, they took it upon themselves to teach me. And mm -hmm. so that was just a wonderful position of privilege to have. Mm -hmm. I, at the start, when you said I felt like I had a privileged childhood, yeah, I, and I've known you for I don't know a dozen years or more, mm. and I've heard you tell this yarn or similar yarns, obviously previously. It just really hit home about yeah, you were privileged, you know. Um, Ron Barassi, Tom Hafey, you know, yeah. it, it, these are not just everyday people that have been in the game. These are iconic people that you've managed to spend your time with. So you, so you jump from being an office boy, and I'm not sure what that is, uh, 
Uh, it literally moving. was picking up the mail. You'd, you'd, yeah. you'd, you'd go and pick up the mail. You know the days where you get the mail and you'd have to distribute it around to everyone? Yeah. It was that, yeah. that type of work. I um, remember working when I used to work at Ford Motor Company. There was a woman that would walk down and she would hand out people's yeah. mail. Uh, yeah, that then, was me. Yeah. And then at 10.30, she would have the morning tea and she'd bring no, it. I didn't down. do the tea. <laughs> but but I, did, I did get a lot of Ron Barassi's cups of coffee for him. And, and, and if we went out at night, a lot of his, uh, a lot of his uh, Bacardi and Cokes as well. So it was... <laughs> So to see, but even to see that, to see them socially was a, was really a big thing. And mm. but then quite quickly though, I was in a relatively decision making role. So I started recruiting at Melbourne full time when I was about twenty because of the mixtape, only because of the mixtape. Um, <laughs> that I was in conversation with Ron, and yeah. and I then got into recruiting and and found I had a bit of a sense of it. And mm. and so and the other thing that I learnt during that period and because I was a, just a young guy coming in was I think one of the things that we have to learn in life is how to work as in just the value of working hard. And, mm. and I had no real reason to be a hard worker before that. I think if I was on the, say the cusp of elite sports and my cousin Peter Schwab was coming into AFL football at that time as well. Mm. And I saw how hard he worked, but there was a clear incentive to work hard, you know, mm. in, that, mm. in that way. But by getting into doing the mixtapes and they'd almost take me all night to do them. And and I and I was I wasn't prepared to own up to Ron that I wasn't getting to bed till four o'clock in the morning, having edited his tapes because because mm-hmm. he's now in in his team meetings he's got all this extra time to work with so my list keeps getting longer his full cap list because uh, he used to spend half the meeting fast forward and rewinding it now he's just showing edits yeah and and every so often I'd go to Ron and I go what what about that time where you know, uh, you know, should have uh, Stephen Smith pushed harder back or should have, you know, Stephen Ick have actually gone over, you know, mm-hmm. I'm having those sorts of conversations and I'm 19 or 20 and every so often Ron would say, yeah, put it in, put it in mm-hmm. the edit. And, I, and I'd be at the team meeting watching, waiting for my little edit yeah. to come up. And I knew that Ron wasn't necessarily that sure when he go, I'm not sure why I put that in. He said a couple of times, you know, <laughs> that would happen. And and because I got to know the guys you know, later on, uh, every so often I'd say that that was my edit, you know, that, that was my <laughs> bit that I that I put in. And and then in the recruiting, we had some success. We made the finals for the first time in a long time, and um, and that really set me up for the next probably twenty five years in the game. As yeah. yeah. Uh, and so you jump from uh, recruiting at Melbourne, which is a, yeah. there's an interesting little relationship as to how we met you yes. and I. You know, which we might talk about a bit later on. But then you go into the, the CEO role at Richmond Footy mm-hmm. Club. Tell me about that, how that went, and, and tell me um, some of the tough decisions you had to make. Yeah, no, it was. I remember sitting in that behind that desk for the first time. And look, I think one of the things that we will always feel is that sense of imposter as a mm. as a leader. But it was never more intense than it was that day. I was twenty four, and I was a young twenty four. I was I was a late developer in life, you know, physically, and um, and so. And a lot of the players who were the great Richmond players of that era, and we, we were a very poor team. We'd, we'd finished on the bottom the year before. Oh. Uh, so the Richmond of my father was a very different Richmond than the one I that I, I worked for. But some of the players who were my my favourite players coming through the system were coming to the end of their careers. You know, say Michael Roach, for instance. My father recruited Michael Roach, and he was a super player. And I, I, I he it was his last year. And then there's guys like Mark Lee. Uh, Dale Waitman, Jimmy Jess, these sorts of players who all Richmond Premiership players who were, who were coming out and, and there was this big gap between them and the next player. So it was a massive transition the club had to go through and we we're also broke, you know, we, we had no money. And like one year in to the role, or two years in rather, I come up with this idea 
and I remember walking around to Neville Crow's house. He didn't live far from where I was, where I lived. And Neville Crow was the president of Richmond and, and a wonderful fellow and a great player of the club who was almost, he came back to the club because the club probably needed a hero more than it needed a president during, during that era. And uh, I remember sitting in his lounge room and saying, I think we have to effectively kill the club. We have to finish it and give the supporters the opportunity of saving it. And that created a thing called Save Our Skin, and uh, and it, and the club raised 1.7 million dollars in a year. Yeah, I that. We're only turning over around two or three million, so that its consequence was significant. And I think with Richmond's great success now, is people have reflected on that time. Yeah. And it's interesting because there there was a young fellow who had only just made his debut that year for the Tigers was was Brendan Gale, mm. and uh, so he played his first year the year that we did the. The Save Our Skin rally. He might have played 18 or 19 games and skinny centre half forward. And then, you know, 25 years later, he is one of the great architects of, you know, one of the great football clubs in the game and, and would have reflections on that period because he was always a, he was always someone who, even as a young fellow, would had a different sensitivity and insight than, mm. and, and it's no surprise that he's done as well as what he has in that regard. Swabby, I want to touch on a, a bit, and I don't want to uh, dismiss the piece about Benny Gale because actually, when I hear him speak in the media, he's actually quite a considered. No, he is. And 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 when I when I spoke to Chev, who helped me put this together, I said one of the things I really enjoy about Cameron is he's quite a considered thinker and then a considered communicator. And one would argue that I'm somewhat different or almost opposite to that. Hey, no, no, I think you underrate yourself from that point of view. I think there's a, and that's what's always drawing me to you know they're, they're, it's obviously colorful but I was inside the inside the um, the color is uh, the depth of experience and and and, and insight which it's all self-made and, and developed so no I think the, I think you underrate yourself without wanting to sound like I'm pumping up your tires <laughs> yeah, thanks mate hey listen I want to touch on this piece about the hero piece you know and I, I want you to share with us if you can, you know, you, I, I remember a slide and uh, we've done it on a few of our retreats that we've done together. Is Everyone needs a hero. Can you share with us the importance of a hero in our lives and, and, and also relate it not, back, not just back to business and sport, but maybe in our personal lives as parents and all that sort of thing. Can you share that with us? Yeah, I, I think the, the it's interesting you mentioned the parent because I, I think the parenting aspect of as it relates to leadership is, is a wonderful or probably the best metaphor in lots mm. of ways, and not 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 in that patriarchal way. You know? No, it's you know there's there's a wonderful saying which is we we build you know let's let's build the child for the path, not the path for the child. Mm. And 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 I've got a transgender daughter, so it's a so this 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 idea of a child for the path was fundamental for her if I, if I if it was all about the path for the child well, well she might never have made the choice that she made and and might actually now be so fully um, de-energized by trying to fit into a world of which is not the one she wants to fit into whereas mm. now she's got the wonderful energy of belonging you know fitting into terrible waste of energy belonging is just wonderfully energizing and so and so right from the outset I, ha I was fortunate in that clearly the game energised me. I, it's funny because I, I worked in it for a long time, and for, for 30 years, and there was always a sense I'm never sure how much I belonged, but I think most people would, you know, who, who have played a role because their identity is so tied to it. And so the, the notion of a hero is, you know, and, I'm, and hero is a, 
is a little bit of an inflated word. I, I get that. But I, I think if people have the impact that they can have, uh, they, they literally do become your heroes. And, and, I, and I grew up with a real-life hero, I mean, my father, but I also came to terms really early with his humanity, you know, because he he fucked up a lot, you know. Mm. Um, and so in the end, I lose my hero because of one of his errors and, um, and it cost him his life, basically. Mm. And so therefore, having to to recognise that, you know, both, both the thing that I got to do in life as in uh, a love of the game, uh, the hero that was provided for me in in my father and my mother also a very strong influence and then to work with it you know Ron Barassi and I got to work with Alan Jeans I got to work with you know some some of the very best people that it was actually provided for me on a platter a lot of this stuff you know and to actually all of a sudden realize and, and I've been sacked twice as a CEO so in those times where you go well, all of the things I I was able to take for granted in my life none of them actually applied anymore and so so therefore the need to go and find yourself a hero. And, and the hero is someone who has clearly got your best interest at heart. You know, that there's, there's no, as much as there ever can be, no other agenda other than the conversation you're having and, and what's best for you. Mm. But secondly, also has the insight, which is relative to whatever the issue you're, you're facing. And so, for instance, even with Evie, when she changed gender, I had to find heroes, really. And the heroes might have been just the experts who could actually, you know, help me because I all of a sudden didn't know how to parent my child anymore, mm. which, I, which I thought that I'd had that in at least one way. And, and in the end, interestingly enough, we, we, the conversations we ended up having, Evie and I, were the, the most important ones. And one of them was to make yourself easier to parent. So even if you're going to go and find yourself a hero, make yourself easy to be coached, make yourself easy to be taught. You know, don't don't come in as a knower, come in as a, a learner. Mm. So I think that constant search for people in your life who can give you the benefit of their wisdom, but also sort of the, the integrity to honour you in that moment, you know, because generally if you're seeking someone's support at a, a pretty particularly crucial times of their life, the, the stakes are relatively high. And and often I found in, over time is that people would have responded to conversations that I've had with them, uh, as in they were looking up to me, because, mainly because of the roles that I played, I would think. And then they would refer back to conversations I couldn't even remember ever having with them as being important to them. And, and I think we should never underestimate that. You know, you and your role, you know, people who are in leadership roles is that it's often, you know, I, I think the great leaders and, and the three guys I talked to before about Ron Barassi, Tom Hapy, Alan Jennings, and I think Neil Van Hoos in this category as well, were people who, there are great people who you meet who you feel good about them. And you certainly did with those guys. Mm. But the really wonderful people are people who make you feel good about you make you feel good about you and they're your heroes and all of those guys and whether it was because of the relationship with my dad I'm not sure mm. Alan Jeans was a little bit different because I lost my dad during that relationship and he was a friend of my dad so maybe I was having conversations with him that I probably wish I was having with my dad because we certainly still had a lot of talking to do so I've now made it a point to, to always I think we develop in life through 
conversations with wise people mm. through the books we read and it might be the podcasts we listen to. Mm. And that gives us hopefully some sort of insight. And then it's up to us what we do with it. Mm. So you need to have then a system. So how do you go about curating your thinking? Mm. And, and you've done some wonderful curation in your life by writing, for example. Mm. That, that is basically a curation of your thinking. It might have been your lived experience, something someone's told you, you've used a bit of COVID, a bit, a bit of this, you know, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's curated in a way and because what you've done is you've, you've, you've borrowed freely but you've combined uniquely to you because yeah. it's, it's a combination. So there's a bit of Alan Schwab in me, there's a bit of Ron Barassi in me, there's a bit of, you know, uh, Neil Danaher in me, the people who I've got to work really closely with, Neil Craig in me. Because why? Because I, I've borrowed their stuff but hopefully I've combined it with my own take. Mm -hmm in a way which is then unique to, to mm. who I am. Mm. So the, the long-winded answer is you've got to find yourself someone who, who, who tick both those boxes, you know, the insight that you need and the integrity that you seek from what you share. Thanks, mate. Going back to then you as the leader. Yes. Right. There's two things I want to touch on here if I can. You, you often talk about honour the role. Yes. And the importance of honouring the role. And I really do want to get down to that piece around is it the culture by design or a culture by default that you create within your organization? And particularly in times of adversity. Mm. Can you, now that's a very long winded question, but there's three aspects to it. Can you talk to us about the importance of honoring the role? Well, there's a whole lot of people who've aligned their lives to you. What you give of, of yourself as a leader. And so everyone talks about this notion of, uh, of authenticity and leadership. And yep. I want to be an authentic leader. Well, authenticity is an outcome. And I think of culture as an outcome as well. So, so authenticity is an outcome. You, you can't have authenticity without vulnerability and you can't have vulnerability without courage. So even in, in, in times where you know, in, you've had an involvement with the media, there are times where people will want to talk about the things you got right and wrong. And, and sports very much a heroes and villains game. But we know that the reality of life is that it sits a bit more on a knife's edge. You know, there's, it's much more subtle than that. But we do end up with a winner and we do end up with a loser. So, therefore, when I talk about honouring the role, I go, are you prepared to be an expression of who you are when it comes to leadership? Which will require, by definition, for you to have, you know, show vulnerability. You know, mm. you can't walk in as the person with the answers every time. You can't, you know, you are going to have really bad days. And almost the three sort of strategic advantages of vulnerability is, 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 is firstly, it's creating an invitation for other people in the organisation to step in and help as well. So if you're creating a space by saying, I don't have the answer here, or I'm uncertain about this. And then the second one is that stuff happens in our life of which we've got no control over, you know, and it's going to affect you. You know, as I've said to you, when, when I went to your, your mum's funeral, I got funeral envy, mate. I, 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 it was just such a, a beautiful thing here and kids talking about that but i know what a difficult time that actually was for you but you had no control over it the mm. only control you had was how you responded and that's and that was what the beautiful thing that we saw that saw that day and and the third one and probably most important part of any form of sort of vulnerability as it relates to authenticity is that it's actually a lot easier you know you just can be a representation of who you are mm. so therefore if you're doing those things you're somehow honoring it and I, you always have little boundaries around it. Like you don't want to come in and say, look, I have no idea what I'm doing here. But there, there's an expectation that you have an idea what you're doing because everyone else loses confidence. Mm. But to actually come in and say, look, this is a really complex issue we're dealing with here. And so what's happened with COVID is that 
I am sure there's been, you have seen people rise as part of this process within, within the practice. You know, you've seen, you've seen aspects of their character. Uh, in some cases, it might have been exposed, but aspects of their character, which would have been just so powerful for you. And so honouring the role is not just the aspiration to have the role, it's the aspirations to make a difference. And, and, and when you're talking and you're talking to your group, often a nice little insight for yourself is to say, not what are people hearing here, but what would they be th feeling and thinking at this time? Because if you're emotionally, because our role is still to push standards, our, mo our role is to still move it in a certain direction. Hopefully people understand what that direction is. You've got the right people in the room, all those types of things. Mm. So every so often you are going to be pushing people outside of the level of comfort they have. But that's our role as, as leaders is to have enough insight into those people to know that they're actually perhaps capable of a standard that they don't even know they've got in them at this point. But you see it because you've got the benefit of your experience and, and you become the teacher during those times. So that's what I mean by honouring it. And we've all had been in workplaces which have been just ordinary basically because somehow someone's ego's kicked in just too much and and don't worry i fell for that big time you know yeah. i fell for that big time and so that my reflections are more that the, the days I, I think of calm brave humble you know and i think of the, those things I, I stuffed up often you know mm. you know and so even coming back to your culture question i think they really come back almost to those three things mm. and you say okay as a leader are you then modeling the expectations because culture is ultimately the product of behaviors really so, so that's why sport doesn't talk about culture as much as I find business does. Yeah. Sport talks about behaviours all the time mm. and how do we then influence the behaviours of these people to create a culture which is unique to us. Mm. So if you and I start a business tomorrow, the culture will be you and I. Yeah. And then we bring other people in and then it becomes some weird formula as relates to those. Mm. And you've actually, the, the great organisations create cultures which are unique to, the, to, to who's in the room. They don't try and cherry pick one from another. They'll, they'll learn by observation, no doubt, but you can't, if we can learn from the sort of the Richmond humility at this stage and, and Richmond's humility was learning from the All Blacks humility and there's, mm. there's reasons for that, but it very much builds on the lived experience and the shared experience of particularly their, you know, their, their president, their CEO, their coach, and probably 10 or 11 of the key players who have been there for most of that. That, that development journey. Mm. And I think if you think of culture as not what not, not what the, what you want, but what you've got, look into the room and build something around. And if you've got the wrong people in the room, just get them out quickly. Real yeah, so let's, let's talk about that. I mean, there's so many correlations that you use from elite sporting teams and elite sporting clubs. And one of the things that I found interesting in our conversations was this whole list management piece yeah. that you do with your mm. team. Um, can we can we have a, a yarn about it? Because I, for mine, as you mentioned earlier, I don't mind gleaning, pinching, borrowing other people's thoughts and then adding my bit to it. Yeah, and I, yeah. I really did enjoy uh, your conversation earlier. I mean, I just could hear Brené Brown talking a lot about vulnerability, courage and all that sort of stuff. Yes. But uh, I've just texted and told her that you've lifted half her stuff. But no, no, no. Um, let, let's, let's, so all our businesses are built on our people, our processes, our customers, which obviously dovetail into driving the financial mm. performance of the business. Mm. And I, I love the the yarn you have around behaviours, and and that's what they do in, in sporting clubs. It's you know those key performance indicators. But I found interesting was about your list management techniques, and and what can we as business owners glean from that within our organisations? Well, well, as if you if you're running an organisation or you're 
responsible for a team, I, I think you should be assessing your, your team every week. Yeah. You know, as that was a match. Because development of people isn't about sitting down with them every six months and doing a performance. It's, it's, it's in the hundreds of micro conversations that we have. And one of the challenges I think during the pandemic is those micro conversations mightn't be being had as often, you know, you're coming and, and you know, the, it's, you know, the walking the floor type stuff. So, so you do, and, and I just have a, I just put four columns in a, uh, put four columns in the back of my notebook. And I write down the names of the 10 most influential people in the organization. And, and often as a CEO, they're reporting to you, but sometimes they're not. Just, you know, in the football club structure, the captain is a very influential person, but he's, he's about five reports away from, from you. And I just put character and competency as the two things that we're, we're looking at. And the character piece is built on the, the fundamental that we recruit for the locker room first. And, but I've made that mistake a lot. Because like everyone, we get beguiled by talent. We get beguiled by, you know, someone who feels just, you know, gee, we really need what that person can bring now. You know, we get worried about long-term versus short-term, all those sorts of things. And under, and under character, I put integrity and intent. They're the two things. And, and the definition of integrity is, does the, does the person do the right thing even when it's hard? That's just the simple way. And I, you either put a tick in that column, a tick and a question mark, a cross and a question mark, or a cross. You only got four measurements. And a tick is just, yeah, they're, they're past the post. Yeah, proven, track record, ready to go. Tick and a question mark is saying, yeah, no, they're going well, but they've got development. And, and so once the question mark goes in, that's an opportunity for feedback. Mm-hmm. A cross and a question mark is saying, oh, on balance, you're probably thinking not, that they'll have to prove you wrong at this point. And a cross means they shouldn't be working in there. And so you have the four columns and under the, the, under the competency, you have the first one is functional capability. Has the person got the functional capability to do the job? Just not a form of capability, but a, the functional capability to do the role that you need from them. And if they haven't now, in a timeline which actually works reasonably, you know. And the last one is track record. So under competency, two things: track rec- uh, track record and uh, functional capability. And you just do that every week. And then you write from that as you as you're putting it in. You say, okay, what does this role now expect of me as the leader? Well, my role as, as leader is to, de- to develop all those people or ensure that they are being developed. So if it wasn't someone who's a direct report for me, it might have been a conversation I had with that person's team leader or something similar. And the reason you do it every week is the chances you, uh, that you did nothing about it the week before. And we do match reviews in the game. And the one thing where business is dramatic, I think can improve, can improve dramatically as it relates to sport is on the question of what happened. Not, not the question of what now and what next, but what happened. Because what happened is, is a great opportunity to learn from a, uh, from a situation or circumstances as a teaching and coaching thing. So sport, you know, if we play a game on the Saturday, we don't really think about the next game until the Tuesday because we've drawn as much learning out of the previous game as we possibly can. And that is as, as it relates to both the, um, the team and obviously the individual. And in fact, the 18-year-old player is bringing in an edited version of his game to show an assistant coach. So we can get 18-year-old people analysing their own game, but I can't get 35-year-old and 40-year-old people to do that. It's just crazy in my mind. And, and so even, you know, we come back to the hero thing you talked about before, well, really that's almost coaching in its own, own way, where every performance environment in the world has coaches but business, we just play with it a bit, you know. It doesn't doesn't make sense to me. 
Yeah, now I'm thinking about putting a camera system in the office uh, and just getting people to watch their own performance. (laughs) (laughs) But I've had someone who, because a lot of stuff is now being videoed, they're actually watching their when they're putting when they're actually got client. They ask the client, "Do you mind if we do this?" And they are using it as coaching. Right. Yeah. So they might have put a they might put a proposal to someone. Mm. Yeah, and you know, like there's people have now been reduced to putting like serious proposals to organizations in this form. Mm. And they're now looking at their stuff and they go, What what were you noticing in the other that we got them engaged when we showed this? We got them, you know, uh if we if it goes for too long at that point, we lose them. You know, so they're actually using this environment because they now are actually taking stuff as a coaching aid. Um, there's so much Cam, just going back to what you said earlier, right? When I'm listening to you talk like this, there must be so much freedom to be vulnerable in an elite sporting club because I can just imagine when I look in business and in the world that I'm in at the moment, there is a fair bit of ego going on, right? And I just think to myself, the story you told me, 18, 19, 25-year-old young person going to their line coach and saying, yeah, I watched this video last night after the game. And I know I should have pushed forward. I should have done this. I was lazy here. I didn't pick him up. I did, and, and it's, you know, when you realize the things about your own performance yourself first, and then you offer that up to your coach, that is so much more powerful than when yeah. someone says, Jason or Cameron, you should have done this, you should have done that. Because you're owning the issue right there, aren't you? No, very much. And and so even you're a parent, you've got your kids. Mm. The, num- the number one thing that we're trying to teach is self-responsibility with our kids. Yeah. The, the path to the child, the child to the path. So, I love that. So and you've got to remember the male brain doesn't really kick in until it's about 25. You know, mine, in, in a, mine was a, about 38, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, I often think about that even as, say, the role I was playing, that I was just so underdeveloped, you know, in in just in all the ways that you are as a young person. Mm-hmm. And what does self-responsibility self-responsibility looks like is the very thing that we're talking about. Where people, you know, I, I put people generally into three categories. I go the learner, and they're the only one you really want in your organisation. And I was listening to an Eddie Jones podcast. He says, never recruit anyone who doesn't want to get better. And this is just the most simple, beautiful way of saying it, isn't it? Never recruit anyone who doesn't want to get better. And Alan Jeans used to always say, you can't put in what God took out. So there, there is certain characteristics that people actually have that, you know, are natural. Then you get your knower. Yeah, I've done that. I'm not, and straight away, if I'm coaching someone, if I've got a knower, I just say, look, this is not going to work. Yeah. This is not going to work. And the last one is just your ignorant person who you just don't, either they don't care, they're not up to it, just, it's just not important to them, you know, in yeah. their, own, their own way. So you really want to get your, your first category of people into your organisation. So people who actually want to get better and what you often find, and you would have experienced this, is they end up getting better in an area that would, might have been totally different to the reason they were actually employed. You know, yeah. it's like the the player who comes into your club as a centre half forward and ends up being full back. You know, it's yeah. it's that it's that type of thing. But we we start teaching this right from the very start. And the reason why you do this weekly assessment of your people is because it gives you then it informs you for every conversation that you might have. So if I've done my weekly assessment on you, we might be driving to an appointment together. We might mm. I'll meet you downstairs for a couple. That is then that opportunity for me to say, look, I've been meaning to say to you, Jason, that piece of work you did the other day was terrific, mate. That was a that was a tough meeting. You know, they, they were really aggressive at the start. You held your nerve. Da, da, da. Then the three little three little things which go through your head, you ask yourself, if I'm going to give feedback, just ask yourself, can you back it up? 
you know, is 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 what I'm about to say, can, or is because you don't want to just say you don't want to come forward with hearsay or rumor or gossip no. or or anything like that because you're just becoming part of the gossip yeah. circle. Then you then ask yourself, is what I'm going to say valuable, important? And then you ask yourself, is it coming from a good place? As in, is is are my reasons for saying? Because one of the overarching things we have to always think about is, is it my ego talking? Is it my mm. anger talking? Is it my, you know, uh, am I sort of the half not telling the full story in, in all of this stuff? Yeah. You know, that's that's one of the things you always need to think about. But you need to inform these conversations. So the, the conversations that coaches have in, at AFL level, they're highly informed conversations. Of course that they doesn't are. Yeah. It doesn't mean you still don't have the good on your mate, how you going, how's your mum and dad and all that. It's... Those things still happen, but they're very informed conversations. What I find with leaders in business is they don't inform themselves on the conversation often, and it's the consistency which is critical. You know, so it, I can't think of anything in life where you have to become, we're trying to get good at it, which it doesn't require you to be consistently working at it. And and so I think coaching and assessment and development of your people, it's almost the number one thing. You know, oh, it has if, to if be. Got, yeah, you know, I can hear when you spoke, and you've, we've had this conversation around list assessment and, and and the piece around, you know, monitoring the performance of your team members or the 10 influential team members uh, every week. And, and when you were talking about it before, I could almost hear what how I used to think was, I used to say, Cam, how the hell have I got time to do that every week, right? And yes. now I, when I listen to it this time, I, I laugh at myself saying, this is the number one thing I have to yeah. do. Takes you and 10 I, minutes. In 10 minutes, yeah, and, and I, that, that second piece that you just shared with us around can I back it up, Yeah. right? Uh, is it coming from a good place mm. and is it going to be valuable? Is it something of value to that team uh, That team member? I, I mean, I, I just think that's gold. That's just, that's key. And, and the, the next piece is around let's make it happen consistently. Yeah. Right? Because when it's not consistent, then it just falls away, right? And then the person doesn't really know what the hell's going on. Is he going to talk to me this week or not and all that sort of stuff? Yes. The other, the other bit, just, just on that though, you're also making yourself available for that same feedback. Yeah. Because no one tells the CEO their baby's ugly. <laughs> so you, you just got to have a situation where people can come to you and say, look, I'm going to give you this feedback. By the way, I'm looking for it. Mm. It's very hard to get honest information from your people. Mm. So you make yourself available to it, but you do it. So all I wanted to do is pass the same test. But yeah. if you're going to, you're going to actually give me feedback. Please make sure you can back it up because there's going to be a lot of bullshit spoken. You know, we understand that, particularly in in a noisy environment that an AFL mm. club is. Mm. Uh, and so there's going to be views and opinions of me from people who never have never met me in my life. And I don't. That's the feedback I'm not looking for. Yeah. If you think that I was distracted during a meeting, if you think that I just was a bit buddy abrupt with someone, yeah, tell me, please. Mm. because I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think it was the right thing to do. And now you're coming back to me. And it's interesting because I had I had someone actually sit in on one of my talks who was an ex-TED convener. And I, not not for any other reason other than feedback. And he and he, he was more nervous giving me the feedback than I was getting it. And I'm just thinking, because I come from a world of feedback, mm. I think this is just a wonderful opportunity. And what he said, he said, oh, can I just email it to you? No, no, let's have a chat, you know. And because he was that nervous, I'm talking about blacks in fifties. Like he shouldn't be nervous. Yeah. Um, and the stuff he gave me was just gold. Like it was just 
gold. And it was to the point where, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you just almost have to be inspired to go and fix the problem that he actually talked to. Yeah, you he told you yesterday, yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, because we, you know, in our world, often you don't get that. And and as a CEO in AFL Club, I didn't get nearly enough. I got, I didn't want for advice, but I didn't get very good feedback, you know. Um, and so you had to try and create that for yourself. Hey, uh, just another thing. Uh, what I love is when people own their own performance. And I, you know, parenting is one of the more challenging jobs that we ever have. No one really teaches it us how to do it. We learn from our parents what to do and what not to do. Well, that's what we think anyway, because that's how it shaped us, uh, rightly or wrongly. And I know that, you know, during the time where the families are spending more and more and more time at home together for various different reasons, our, our young son, Tommy, is 13 and the whole kids on PlayStations and iPads and, you know, there's all this talk about limiting screen time and all that sort of stuff. And I, I heard a little gem from someone and said, just ask him how much time he should be spending. Hmm. And, and, you know, we had a conversation with Tommy the other day and, you know, my son is six or two at 13, which that's a whole other conversation. But he uh, he said, Dad, I don't think I should be spending more than two hours on my PlayStation and maybe an hour on my phone. Now, that's on the back of the day where he spent nine hours on it, right? Now, if I, if I jumped on him and said, PJ, mate, too long on there, it's going nowhere. But when he owns it himself, you know, this is a 13-year-old kid, built like a man, <laughs> but it's a, it's a different conversation that we're having. It is. And he's going to go through... Um, there's, there's, I heard someone describe puberty as a ritual of ordeals. Mm. You know, it's a ritual of ordeals. You know, and and it's got, it's, it's actually, and they won't. There's certain things they just have to go through in their own mind. Yeah. But to to work that out, the the the, the only thing that we try to do is, is give our our kids, you know, the, the the insight that in the moment they make the right call that they're going to make, but they're going to they're going to make mistakes because they almost have to, you know, mm. as part of it all. And and even in because I've now I've been sort of out of the game for, for six or seven years. I, I've actually been I've spent a lot of time just 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 reflecting on sort of the, the transition type stuff that we do in that we do in life. And and I I think of all of the most important transitions that I've made have all been a product of an ordeal in in one way or another. Yeah. And and that's not and they might be the ones that I'm more prone to reflect reflect oh. on. I mean and, that's what I find interesting about you, Swabby, is the conversations that we mainly have and the conversations that you share uh, with me, my team and, and the audiences that you speak to really talk about the times that you fail. And, yeah. uh, you know, I know, I've, I, as I said, I've known you for a dozen years or so. I remember, you know, first meeting you at the MCG, parking underneath and going up and seeing all the nostalgia around the Melbourne um, footy club and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I guess we met by accident because I think you were flying back to Fremantle I went in to get a book show, uh, buy a book in the bookshop. I think you might have been with Chris Connolly or something. You said to me, and, yes. and I, I did a little shifty there because I got David Schwartz to write the forward of my book, and I had his his name in a larger print than I had my name, the author. And you said, "Oh shit! Look, I recruited the ox. He's written a book. It doesn't look like him on the cover." Um, but, but I do remember Cam the time when you were the whole Melbourne Footy Club stuff, and. Uh, you're on the front page and the back page of the Herald Sun and, and you ended up getting tipped from the Melbourne Footy Club. Tell me tell me what that was like and, and tell me how you dealt with that. Uh, it was hard. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the one of the things which which has always come with the job is that you've had to make choices on other people's careers and so so therefore you have to be honest enough to know 
um, not necessarily you you won't necessarily agree, but you you have to understand that that's the right. You know that people people can say we we're heading in in this direction, and and you're going to have to find your happiness elsewhere if you like. You know you're going to have to, and and that's happened. You know I've had to sit down with coaches and tell them that their times their times up, and yeah. and it's happened twice to me, and both times at, at Melbourne, and and both in probably a longer term response to an area, a controversial thing at the time. And, and what, what's truth in that and what's not truth almost gets lost. And, and in the end, doesn't become, it doesn't become, um, it's not almost the most important thing anyway. In, in the end, the boards make a choice that, and, and I felt that certainly at Melbourne the second time, that the, the club needs to be able to move on and, and it will struggle to move on with me here, not because of anything to do with my capability, but because of the the perception and the layering and all the things which went with it. And it was during a really complex period. And so to come out, to, to know and finish up, and so that was in 2013 at Melbourne. And so I'm 2013, I'm 49 and, and I'm washed up basically, where really as a CEO, you should be coming into your, yeah. into your prong. And, I, I'd done what a lot of um, men have done and I managed to align all aspects of my identity, self-esteem, self-belief or whatever to what I do in life, you know. So um, so uh, it was a pretty empty vessel when uh, when, when I left. But I, I, I had the benefit of, of being sacked once before and uh, and from from that perspective, just knowing the damage I did to myself. And, and it's interesting you mentioned the Brené Brown thing. I was actually, when I was talking about the vulnerability, I got that from a guy by the name of David White, who's a beautiful writer as well. But mm. she does talk about vulnerability and she talks about the, the shaming. And uh, and so it's taken me a long time for me to go from I am, as in I am that thing which you had to read about in the, in the paper, mm. to I did, as in that's something which happened that I played a role in, but it doesn't define who I am. Yeah. And... And given the, the nature and the learning from ordeal, uh, it's been a gift. And, and as you know, I talk openly about mental health. Uh, yeah. I got diagnosed with depression when I was um, in my early 30s. Mm. And I remember walking away from that thinking, how do I make sure that no one ever finds out about this? Yeah. And I, and I managed to keep it secret for 20 years. And I would go into it because I had the same psychiatrist I would, and I still see the same guy to this day. And I now almost call it my gift of depression. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but it, it built in me probably a capacity to, to reflect uh, that I don't think was a natural thing because I, I was into momentum. I was into there's a path we're going and I'm going on that path and one day I'm going to end up with a six-pack of silverware that I'll be that bloody proud of and that's how I'm going to define my life. Well, I managed to spend 25 years as a CEO and never won a premiership. So it's it becomes, so am I going to actually define myself by that or am I actually going to have some sense of pride in the work that I did and the insights and the learnings that I always have? But then in this effort to try and find whatever the, the next thing was, in a roundabout way, it took me to art school, ended up studying fine art. And because it was, I knew that there was a part of me which was very attracted to that. Um, yeah. and, and it ends up being really important. And then rebuild some sense of value of myself as someone other than being a CEO of an AFL club, which I've been for the, pre the previous 25 years pretty much. 
and and then from that i got my mojo back a little bit and because the one thing which art is about more than anything is about how you go about creating a conversation and i actually had an i had an art teacher his name's raf ishak and he was a wonderful fellow and he came up to me about halfway through my first year at fine art at victorian college of the arts and he said you do art like a ceo it's like the <laughs> ultimate it's like the ultimate put down you know yeah and he said what you're trying to do is you're trying to you're trying to create a conversation starting here, but you want to bring it way back down into here. Mm. In art, you have to have comfort that you can leave the conversation back mm. here and let whoever's looking at your stuff make up their mind as to what it actually is. Mm. And that that that's a very intimidating thing to do. Mm. And and so from that, I thought, well, what I want to do from this point onwards is that I, I want to be able to say, here is my little piece of the world. It might only be half an inch wide, but it's going to be a mile deep. And I'm going to find people who are interested in that half inch, mm. you know, rather than actually say, oh, yeah, I can do that, I can do that. No, I'm just going to go, this is the stuff I really like talking about. I'm only interested in, as you know, if I put presentations together, the very first slide I put up is how serious are you? How, how mm. serious are you? And then I give you the seven reasons why this program will fail. You know, the very first thing I do, because I'm only interested in people who've got an appetite to recognise that if you want to be a serious a leader who is a reflection of who you are, it will take some work. I'm not saying that it's you're going to have to dedicate your life to it, but you're going to have to build rituals and habits and ideas and thinking and put yourself in conversation with good people. These are the things which are going to do that. And you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for the people who are aligning their careers with whatever you give out mm. each day. And, and that's been the journey of, say, Design CEO for the last three years. And each year it just builds on its own piece of learning. And... And, uh, and I'm, it's in a good space now. It's got to a really good place. And if there's one thing I could say about you, Swabby, is that you do build things based on your own learnings. That That is a true reflection of the person that I know, Cameron Swab. Mm. I also had this amazing image in my head. And, I, and you know I enjoy you this. Love, you love it. I love it. But just you going from boardroom, CEO, biggest game in town on significant brass, to next week sitting at the Victorian College of the Arts next to kids that are smoking dope. And I just find that so cool. I, did, I really wish I'd had it been a fly on the wall just for the first week. And yeah, it was, would have been. No, and there was a bit of that going on. It was, And it was the first time I'd ever been to uni, like as in sort of first year uni. I, I did, I studied an MBA and did that later on. Yeah. I'd never done first year uni before. You know, I yeah. went straight into it. And, uh, it's very bloody humbling, to be honest. Because yeah, all of a sudden, everything that I'd done, like everything I'd done in my life, I'd basically, in one way or another, and this is in my mind, by yeah. the way, I'd put into a, a box and I'd done any, it done everything other than locked it and whacked it up in the attic. Yeah. Like every, every single part of me. Yeah. And then now I'm creating a new part of me. Well, that's a wonderful thing to be able to do, but it, it doesn't leave you with much to, to hang off. In its own in its own way, yeah. And so then, going into the business which I now do is that every experience I've had, both good and bad, has a value. And so, and, and you're right. I don't talk about the stuff which went well mm. often. And I'm, I'm doing a fair bit of writing at the moment. And I looked at it, and it was all the ordeal questions. So I thought. So I'm actually then. I, I then I turned the page and I wrote down what are the things that I'm most proud of that I achieved in the game. Yeah. And, and a lot of it related to, it all came back to relationships, but 
but it was Melbourne making the finals for the first time in 1987. It was Melbourne going from last on the ladder to a prelim in 98 after they almost merged. It was, and then played in a grand final in 2000. Yeah, it, was going over, it was going, yeah, they did. And, and, but it took someone, you know, because you only lost one game for the whole year. So that sort of stuff where you, you then, it was going over to Frio and, you know, making the finals for the first time, creating a good business model, all that, you know, these are the things. And even, you know, Melbourne, which was a real struggle when I came back, Richmond SOS, you know, mm. coming back to Melbourne, which is a real struggle, we didn't have any success, but we rebuilt the financial model, the profit model of the club, which is actually now seen it through COVID. Mm. Which we wouldn't have got through COVID. In, if COVID had happened in, um, in, in 2008 or nine, well, gee, I don't know where Melbourne would have gone. You know, because they had no asset, where it's now one of the asset-rich clubs and that type of thing. Mm. We didn't get the success that we wanted to mm. as a team, and a whole lot of stuff went on, obviously. Yeah, you know, which we which we reflected on. Yeah. So, so to actually just to go, okay, what was because you learned from the stuff which went well, mm. yeah, you know, as well. And I think uh, I, I have a, um, I don't know about you, I think you're a bit the same. But when you actually really worked hard to achieve something, by the time you've actually got there, you're thinking about the next thing. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and so. Yeah. I, I, and so every so often I'll be uh, talking to someone who may have worked at Frio, for instance, and they go, that was the best time of my whole life. That was just the greatest thing I was ever involved with. And, gee, I just miss it every day of my life. And I'm thinking, well, that's pretty cool. Mm. But because we move into the next thing, um, yeah. and, and that probably was the time. I think Frio in around that time was the time where I felt best about what I was doing. Mm. Yeah. And the weather's pretty nice over there. Yeah, it was good. It was good <laughs> hey, good Steve, before we finish up, there's just a couple of things that I just wanted to talk about. And I'll, I'm going to put you on the spot, so I hope you're okay. And, and if you're not okay with it, we can always edit it out, right? See, this is no, no, you know, uh, you know uh, I'll be okay. <laughs> I, um, I just want to touch on that piece around it's not what I've done or what I did that's going to define me. Yeah. It's really more about my future and, and one of the uh, recent psychologists that I've been working with, because we all have various different challenges and, you know, and we've all been through a traumatic event or two in our life. And, mm-hmm. and often you, you meet people that are still clinging on to that thing that happened to them. And you, but you don't understand, Jay, my wife left me or, you know, my business went under. And it's that ability to just stop and remember, it's not what I've done or who I was that's going to define me. And when Harry put this to me, he said, it's, your potential and your future, mm. that's what you should focus on defining you. And and throughout the various things that have happened to me in my life, I, I just, when I'm feeling a bit down, a bit sad about certain things or what's happened to me or what I've done that's caused something to happen to me or whatever it is, I, I just try to focus on the potential. And then that sort of changes my mindset completely. And I, I wanted to, you, you've provided us with a lot of fantastic nuggets today and I'm, I'm hoping that we might be able to share you know you've got a lot of those little tools that we can use i'm wondering whether i can put a link on our facebook page and maybe a link through our edm that people can if they like your stuff they might be able to get access to that tool that you use around assessing your team members and some of those other tools that you've shared with me are, are you okay with it yeah definitely yeah no problem yeah. at all no problem before at all. we finish thank you so thank you it's very hard for you to say no. It's that whole NLP. <laughs> no, no. But, I, but I, one of the, and it sounds silly, but one of the reasons, and I've, one of the things I've learned from you is that if you offer yourself generously, you know, it just somehow stuff happens, you know. And, and and that's coming from someone who probably lived in a fairly closed environment because it's a very noisy environment. And at different times, you're just terrified about 
people's interpretation of your generosity. Well, whereas in our world now, we can just be who we want to be. You've got you've got more responsibility to the organisation, but really, design CEO is a reflection of just me. So it comes from a place of generosity from uh, as a starting point, and I, I encourage that also in in leadership. You know, yeah. People. Thanks, mate. Hey, uh, last thing, a minute I want from you. Yeah. Uh, and it's around. I'm going to coin this phrase incorrectly, so my apologies, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but someone once said to you, the most important person in the room on the field is the one with the ball in their hands. Can you yeah. explain that to me? So, yeah, no, it was actually at a um, good friend of mine, Chris Conley, uh, his, his father, iconic figure in um, country football, and played a few games with Teddy Whitner, the Western Bulldogs or Footscrows they were then back in the day and ends up then spending a lifetime just coaching one of those great footy people, end up being president of the Golden Valley Footy League, um, which is great football competition, you know, Shepard and Kai Abram. It's the only place in the world they shorten all the names, Shep, Kai, Tat, Tally, Rube. No, there's no other place in the world they shorten the names other than the Golden Valley, I don't <laughs> think, you know. Yeah, I'm just going over to Kai, then we're going back to Tat, you know, then we're going over to Tally, then we're going to Inver, then we're going up to Chuka. They even take the E out of Chuka. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just one of those places. And that was the Melbourne zone. So so a whole group of my friends in life, you know, Gary Lyons from Kai, you know, Chris Connolly's from Shep, you know, Kelly O'Donnell's from Kai, Adrian Batterson from Tat, you know, they're all, they're all from that place. Anyway, so he passed away a few years ago and uh, Barry Connolly and, and and went up for his service and it was like a big country funeral, like just one of those big, you know, basically the whole town stopped. And uh, and the little funeral booklet, beautiful photo of Baz on the, on the front and on the back it just had this thing, the most important person in the club is the one with the ball in their hand. And, and, I, and I just thought it might be one of the best things because what we actually do, we think somehow as the leaders that, that we're the ones with the ball in our hand, we've rarely got the ball in our hand, you know. So if we're going to hand the ball over to someone, can we at least give it to someone who we've, we've given them the tools to, in fact, deal with whatever the responsibility of having the ball in their hand is? And so in your business, do you put as much capability in front of the clients as you as as you can rather than thinking actually all the capability sits with us smart buggers in boardrooms it's just bullshit you know so you know i can tell you what the worst job on a footy club when you get thrashed is you know what do you reckon the worst job is you know when you get thrashed yeah i would have thought it'd be the coach i reckon it's the receptionist oh yeah of course Well, particularly at Richmond, where they've done like a story <laughs> yeah, and burning their microwave in their memberships. Yeah, and that was you know, Mark Brayshaw. Was that, that was he was the CEO then. The um, so you because the coach at least gets to go back to the players. The coach gets it, whereas the reception has got no control over what happens on match day. Yeah. And guess what's coming at them? And people, yeah. you, you can't ask people to love you, and then not think that it's going to evoke some fairly irrational emotions from uh, from time to time so in, in if you're putting someone who's just not equipped for that that is just so unfair for that person mm. and so the most important person in the club with the ball in their hand is actually because really from the coach once they've done the done the runner with them through the media and all that you're actually yeah. yeah, you're in the seclusion of your own cocoon and you've got your own people around you and you've got all that receptions they're just up front all day yeah, and the worst stuff gets thrown. You can't believe how people behave, you know, in those situations. Mm -hmm. Or you probably can. Mm -hmm. But it is the worst of uh, human nature, I reckon, coming out. And so this, this so are you giving people, and it goes back to that talent manager, you know, character competency piece. You know, have, have you, and, and I don't mind stretching people. I've got no problem there, but don't drown them, you know. And that's part of the insight that we need to have. Every so often you've got to play players before they're ready. 
but that's only on the basis that it's going to help them become something further down the track. And there's a lot of judgment involved in that. And you're going to get it right. You're going to get it wrong. And really as leaders, if we're dealing with anything other than the sort of 4951 decision where we're sort of not doing our job properly and therefore you need to have a whole lot of 60, 40 people around you and give them the ball and give them the ball and you've got to be prepared to hand it over. Cameron Schwab, mate, that was outstanding. Thank you so much, Toby. Good friend, very intelligent, wise, considered thinker. But above all else, you're a good, honest bloke, mate. So thanks for having me. Thank you very much, mate. It's been a pleasure. You take care.